This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There isn't a whole lot of doubt that the one sector that probably gets Americans the most mad right now is healthcare. The massive size of it, as well as the costs associated with it, just highlight some of the dysfunction it is seeing right now. And it seems now that there are more companies trying to enter this sector as they see the growth of the industry that it has recently seen and the potential growth that it may have in the future. We are joined now by uh, the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, Elizabeth Rosenthal. She has taken an in-depth look at the issues out there in her new book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Elizabeth, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I, I, I'm amazed to, to first to put a book like this together because of all the issues out there. This had to be a massive undertaking. How long were you at it to begin with? Well, this is kind of a life's undertaking in some ways. You know, I trained as a physician and then came to the New York Times in the 90s to cover the Clinton Health Reform Act. So I've been and then did many different kinds of health of coverage in the intervening years, but came back to healthcare reporting in 2009. And so I feel like I, I as I say, I've had kind of a ringside seat to this slow moving heist of our healthcare system. And uh, once I came back to the Times to cover healthcare, I did a series called Pain Till It Hurts. It was about trying to look at the high costs of healthcare and how they came to be this way, because I genuinely didn't get it. I didn't understand why are we paying two to three times the rest of the world. And from that, we used a lot of social media to solicit patient stories. And I had so many stories and, and so much information that in the end, I decided, you know what, a newspaper series, as good as it may be, looks at this system from many different angles, you know, each picks off a piece of the element. But um, what I really needed to do was to write a book to put it all together. So uh, the book itself took about a year, but the research was kind of ongoing over years. And I'm really indebted to all the patients who contributed their stories because they gave me kind of the tip of the iceberg to explore when someone sent me a $117,000 bill that they didn't understand. As a journalist, I had, you know, I knew where I had to start looking. I, I was, it was fascinating. I, I was going to say, I mean, are costs just the biggest problem with the industry right now? Well, I would say so. And I'd say it's also the biggest problem for health reform, whatever form it takes, right. you know, whether it's the ACA or Republican replacement, really until we get these prices and costs under control, nothing is going to work very well for patients. And after all, Patients are the should be the focus of this um, this endeavor we call medicine, um, but more and more it's kind of the business um, incentives that have become the primary driver. And that to me, you know, as someone who trained as a physician and my dad was a doctor, I found mm-hmm. it really, really disturbing. And I'm, you know, it's fine for me if pay, people make profit, but they should make profit out of doing things that are good for patients and the best for patients. And instead, what we see is often profit without regard to whether there's really actual medical benefit. And that's that's a really sad state to be in. And that's a big part of why our costs are so high. And, and it does feel like a little bit like this is an industry 
I, I hate to use the term out of control, but but to a degree it feels like it because you have so much new uh, element, so many new elements coming into it, so many new companies that want to be in it, as I said at the top, because they know where the profitability is. You see the massive uh, number of jobs that are added to this sector pretty much every month right now. It does at times feel like it's it's a little bit out of control. Yeah, you know, when I asked one expert, one former health commissioner, you know, why is healthcare such such you know why is it such a a, a booming sector? And he said it's like asking Willie Sutton why he robs banks. You know, that's where the money is. <laughs> right. And you know, it's it's true. I mean, you know, we like to say this is a market. We have a market based system, but really, it's such a flawed market that even the most conservative economists look at it and go, this isn't a market. You know, the the buyers, first of all, we're not actually the buyers of health care. We're mostly told what we need. We don't know prices of the choices that are put before us. Even the doctor doesn't know the price. And the price can vary, you know, from block to block by a factor of 100. So how can you possibly expect you know, wise consumer decisions to totally solve this problem. Now, as I say in the book, I think being wiser can help once right. you kind of understand how the system works and, and where you're being taken advantage of. You can and should push back. But overall, we need to control these prices, and that's the key question of how are we going to do that? By the way, first ever Willie Sutton reference on this show's history, so congratulations <laughs> to you for putting that in. But but for, for a lot of consumers out there, I mean, it, it it is a challenge just to understand a lot of the basics. And so for people to truly understand this, I mean, what what does it take for for an American right now to have a, it, yeah. not even a full understanding, but at least a good enough understanding so that you're not getting taken advantage of? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I should say this is a horrible burden to put on patients, sure. especially yeah. when they're sick, to say, oh, you know, shop around, ask your doctor how much it's going to cost. You know, say yeah. no if you think it's not a good, you're not getting good value. I mean, no other country puts that kind of burden on patients, frankly. So, um, but, you know, this is the reality we face right now at the moment. So uh, to throw up your hands, as many of us do, and as I did before I kind of dug into the system and understood what levers I could push, you know, I, I would just throw up my hands and write the check and think, oh, my God, you know, this is crazy, but what can I do? So I think the, the first um, point of information is for people to understand that you can question bills in healthcare as you would in any other sector. Sure. You can refuse to pay them. I, I kind of half tongue in cheek when people say, because I became the kind of de facto bill negotiator at the New York Times, when people <laughs> would throw their medical bills in front of me and say, what should I do? My first piece of advice was, don't write the check. You know, don't yeah. write the check. Um, Look at this bill. It says $45,000 miscellaneous or, you know, broad categories, pharmaceuticals, hospital room. Um, ask for itemization because you're going to find 50 to 90 percent of the hospital bills and studies have errors. You might find, as one patient in the book did, that he had been billed for a, a, a circumcision for his newborn. Well, his newborn wasn't circumcised, right? right? Yeah. He knew that. His insurer didn't. So I would say look at the bills, uh, see if there are errors, question things that don't look right. You know, often we'll find um, on a hospital, one, one common thing is, you know, like after surgery when the nurse 
when someone comes in and says, oh, do you want me to help help you walk down the hall? And you say, oh, okay. Um, you see that come up on a bill as a $300 physical therapy charge. Say, no, that wasn't physical therapy. That was just someone, you know, all I did was walk down the hall. And I think the more we question these bills, first of all, it will, will save us some money because, you know, in an age of higher deductibles and co-payments, you're likely paying some of this out of pocket. Sure, yeah. But second of all, if we start questioning it, um, the, the, the sellers, the hospitals, the providers, the testing centers will have to respond. If we say, show us the price, we didn't get that service. Um, you know, you look at a restaurant bill and say, uh-uh, you never brought that second glass of wine. Right. Um, but we, we feel we don't feel entitled or empowered to do that with health care. And sometimes it's because our insurer is paying. Um, but as I said, frequently more and more we're paying. And second of all, I like to remind people that if our insurer is paying outrageous prices for things that weren't done, that's why your premiums are going up next year. So we have to be more conscious about that, too. Elizabeth Rosenthal joining us. She is the author of the book, an American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business, and How You Can Take It Back. Uh, let's do a little bit of history on this and, and playing off of the subtitle uh, uh, of the book. What was the, the time frame and, and really kind of the trigger that, that made healthcare just explode the way that it has over the last decade? Well, it, it really is a kind of slow-moving phenomena where the dominoes fall one by one in different sectors of healthcare, which is why the book is organized that way. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that kind of the original sin of our crazy healthcare system was the creation of um, insurance, yeah. you know, Medicare and employer-sponsored health insurance. That doesn't mean insurance is bad. I have to say that really quickly. Insurance is good, and in an age of, of high-priced medical care, people need insurance. But what that original construct of insurance did, remember, in the in the good old days, insurers pretty much covered everything, and uh, probably your employer paid for the premium, so you didn't even know what it was. So, you know, what happens when you don't feel like you're paying? Americans become very price insensitive. And what do you do if you're a for-profit business, as most of the providers and device makers and pharmaceutical companies are? You say okay, you know, we've always charged $10 for that when someone was paying out of pocket, but hey, now they've got insurance, so it kind of feels like nobody's paying. Right. So you see this progression of first, you know, it goes up a little bit. Maybe that $10 becomes $50 or, or $100. But then what you see around the turn of the century is um, – and it's in response to the managed care push to lower prices. Uh, hospitals and providers get business consultants in, so they have people from Deloitte and McKinsey come in and say, "How do we how do we make this work for the bottom line?" And what they what they're told is, "Hey, you could do everything you're doing now just the same way, but you build more effectively. You capture right. revenue." And so then you know that so then that twenty five dollars goes from. To not just to $100, but to $1,000. And some hospitals say, why not 5000 And, you know, as long as insurers keep paying it, that works. And then, of course, insurers start pushing back and negotiating discounts, but they're not discounts to the $25 or the $50 or the $100 price. Maybe they'll take the 5000 to 4000 You know, so it's all this kind of inflationary cycle right. where um, – 
you know, we have where, where everyone has the sense that nobody's paying. And of course, you know, we develop this fiction um, that insurers are on our side. They're in our corner, which is kind of crazy. I mean, we don't think our car insurer is in our corner. No. You know? <laughs> but we we have this notion, which of course the medical insurers, health insurers, promote that you know we're here, we're we're here to help you. Well, no, they're just pass-throughs. You know, they take in premiums and they pay out claims, and so as long as they can raise premiums and deductibles, their response to paying out claims that have higher and higher prices is mostly just to pay it. You know, they don't care. As one one insurance salesman uh, says in the in the book, you know. Uh, they're too big to care about you. Right. And it's too much trouble if they get a bill, as one patient did, for $117,000 that was out of network. Um, you know, he said, why is my insurer paying this? And I called the insurer, which was Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, and said, why are you guys paying this? It's for an assistant surgeon. And they said, well, look, you know, we to not pay it, we would have to investigate. We'd have to figure out what was done in the <laughs> operating room. We'd probably have to take the guy to court because we don't have a contract with him. It's easier for us just to write the check. And P.S., they said to me, oh, are you going to write about this? Because we don't want the other surgeons to know that they can get away with it. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> so, you know, we're <laughs> encouraging this kind of entrepreneurial behavior yeah. in people who are inclined to it. And, of course, we're creating equally outrage in the good doctors who are just kind of, you know, working hard, trying to do the right thing for their patients without regard to the finances. And I think, you know, I, they're in the majority. They don't want their patients ripped off, yeah. but they feel as powerless as we do. Many people have thought that the the push into digital health uh, was really going to affect this industry in in a very positive way. Uh, and, and even though, to a degree, we're still in the early stages of it, do you think it, it is having a positive effect? Well, I think it has potential for enormous uh, positive uh, to be an enormous positive force. I think what we see, sadly, is that it's not living up to its potential right. um, the way it's deployed now. You know, medical record, I've, the best example of this is medical record systems, the digitized medical records and electronic medical records, which in theory, you know, would be great. We In the Recovery Act, we all spent billions and billions of tax dollars to make healthcare providers digitize and to use electronic medical records. That, in theory, should allow any doctor anywhere to send my record, you know, of my latest CAT scan or my prior EKG to another hospital. Yeah. But what we find is because of commercial reasons, hospitals don't want to share that. That's like, you know, um, giving away their data. If they share that, then you can go to the other hospital system. Uh, so it, it, it's hmm. being used in very perverse ways. And the complaint you hear from doctors is, and why you see your doctors in front of computers all the time now, is that these medical record systems are designed to capture revenue. They're designed for billing purposes, not for the patient's best interest. And that, to me, is the essence of the problem, that, um, you know, the the values of business, what are they? They're, um, they're efficiency, revenue generation, revenue capture, profit. Um, those are not the values of healthcare. They may be in some cases. I mean, hospitals were certainly horribly ineff inefficient 30 years ago, and they could have used a little more efficiency. But, 
you know, efficiency is your doctor seeing you for five minutes, but good sure. medicine is I want my doctor to talk to me and explain to me why I need this test and to think about should we order it or could we wait two weeks. But efficiency is let's just order it all because, you know, better to have all the results up front and then we can make a decision. And, hey, you know, the hospital's probably making a lot of money from all those tests being ordered up front anyway. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember the days where, and if, I, mind you, it was when I was a little kid, uh, the days of, of the uh, the doctor coming to your home. You know, if you were sick, I mean, that that was truly the time where the healthcare sector really did focus on the patient first and not necessarily the bottom line. So, I mean, maybe even just as simple as stopping to have the home visits by doctors was kind of one of the first little triggers of this of this industry becoming more and more financial. Yeah, and you know that's not efficient. I, I mean, again, it's this, this, and and you look at the push to to uh, technology and technology based solutions. One thing um, I'm always a little amused by is there's a push now which can be very useful to do telemedicine, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe you have a homebound person and they have a simple question of their doctor. Yeah. Um, and they or a doctor could look at something over a screen. I mean, that's great in situations where the doctor really can't see the patient or maybe doesn't need to see the patient for minor things. But then we see this escalation because it's a better revenue generator if you, you see less and less and less and do more and more from your iPad, right? Yeah. So now yeah. now there are programs to, um, you know, do hospice care by iPad, home hospice care. Well, I mean, that's fine, but I think maybe that's efficient. But I think most people who are in home hospice want an actual human being to come there and kind of hold their hand and talk to them. So, you know, again, it's the values of business efficiency versus the values of what has long been a, a caring, um, human-focused uh, endeavor. And I think we have to be really careful about losing that that important profession. Elizabeth Rosenthal is the author of the book, An American Sickness. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, send me a comment via Twitter, either at bizradio111, B-I-Z radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at danloney21. This is also a time period right now where we are going to see more and more of the baby boomer generation uh, getting older, growing into going into care facilities, you, you know, a different uh, element in their medical lives. Yet it's an industry which a lot of people have talked about in, the, in recent years that maybe is not as ready as it needs to be for all of these new patients that they're going to see. How, how do you look at that element to the, to the health care problem? Well, you know, we have an aging population, and that means um, costs are going to go up. Uh, uh, and so we really, I mean, it put, puts even greater um, import in in controlling these prices, I think, and for focusing on the actual medical needs, not on the business models. You know, um, w- you look at something like artificial hips and knees, we pay often over 50,000, often over 100,000 for an artificial hip and knee, which um, can be done in other countries for 10000 to $15,000. When you look at uh, some of the medical business literature, 
they see this as a bonanza. You know, there's going to be a 300 percent rise in the need for artificial knees. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, so and that to me, it's not a business bonanza. Artificial knees, knee replacements are great, but we're going to need to be doing a lot of them. So we got to get the costs under control because this isn't sustainable. And I mean, what you see for people approaching 65 is people often talk about the promised land of Medicare because they right. don't have to deal with this crazy system. And more and more physicians are saying, fine, let's let's just do Medicare. You know, right. at least I don't have to deal with this hassle. And Medicare, of course, has its problems. But it is the one part of our system that does a little bit of price control and price setting. Right. Now, they can't do it for drugs, which is why we see these crazy pharmaceutical costs, partly. But they do it for hospital stays. They do it for doctor's visits. And I think, you know, we're going to have to look towards some kind of solution with uh, a real way to control prices as our population ages. Otherwise, all of us, every single one of us, unless we're in the top, you know, 1% of the 1%, are going to spend every last penny we have on health care. And I think that's not where I want to be. Quickly about about Big Pharma, because you do uh, look at that industry as well. And, and obviously with things like the EpiPen and, and Martin Shkreli, I mean, this is an industry that has drawn an amazing amount of attention the last, uh, you know, six to 12 months about where it is going with its cost issues. Yeah. I mean, and, and part of the distress for me as a journalist and as someone who's looked into this world is that, yes, it rises up to the surface when there's like a particular bad guy like Martin Shkreli or there's this EpiPen episode. And there are hearings and everyone kind of says, isn't this terrible? And then it kind of recedes into the background. And what I like to remind people is, yeah, Martin Shkreli was particularly out there, but there are a lot of kind of almost Martin Shkreli's doing pretty much the same thing. And there are a lot of EpiPen episodes that you know, maybe Mylan just kind of overplayed its hand and, hey, that's a, a medicine for li- life-saving medicine for kids' reactions. I can tell you, as someone who is hearing from patients, people were having problems with the cost of EpiPens for, for several years before it kind of blew up. Right. And I think, you know, why are we waiting till one company or one drug kind of overplays its hand to control this? Uh, that's a real problem because it's not just the EpiPen and it's not just Mylan. I mean, it's not just Martin Shkreli. It's all of these drugs which are constantly going up in price. And I think it's fascinating. You look at something like drugs for multiple sclerosis, which yeah. are, you know, it's a, it, it was a, it's a, a serious progressive disease that crippled people in the old days. Now there are pretty good drugs for it, and people live long, um, pretty fulfilled lives with these infusions, but they're hugely expensive. And every couple of years, a new anti-MS drug comes onto the market. These are all mostly by infusion or by injection, or some are by pill. And and it comes in at a higher price than anything else was out there, right, because it's kind of new and improved. And then guess what happens? All the others move up to that sticky ceiling. Yeah. So, so instead of competition and a bunch of drugs bringing down price, you have this phenomenon in pharmaceuticals called sticky pricing, where everything just goes up to the highest price. And that's partly a flaw of our system, where we yeah. give the same patent to Me Too drugs as we do to to the really true innovators. And it's also a flaw of um, 
our 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 kind of our philosophy that that profit motives will um, give us the right answer because. Yeah. With all these companies making a lot of money from MS drugs, those drugs have, haven't really been tested against each other. And it's in no one's interest to know which one's actually better because, hey, yours might not be the, the one yeah. that wins. Yeah. Um, well, Elizabeth, so. I have to end it there. We're at the top of the hour. Thank you very much. Sorry. This is uh, th- No, don't worry about it. This is, I, I wish I could have you for another 30 minutes because there's plenty <laughs> more to talk about. It's a fantastic book. Thank you, Elizabeth, for giving us your time today. Okay, thanks for having me. All, all the best. And by the way, for people that are out there, it's available in bookstores and online right now. And great pieces in the back half of the book that really look at the consumer themselves. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.